Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with our sports editor, Barbara Alberts, and she's here to tell us about some recent allegations that surfaced about GW's former athletic director. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you find out about these allegations? A Deadspin article came out Thursday that outlined allegations of misconduct against former athletic director Patrick Nero, citing former coaches, former staff members under the condition of anonymity. These allegations ranged anywhere from excessive drinking on staff trips to having, quote, strange social relationships with student-athletes while he was still the athletic director. Because these sources in the article were anonymous, the Hatchet has not yet been able to confirm all of these allegations, but there was a video that was published in the article as well. And what's shown in this video? The video obtained by Deadspin was also obtained from an anonymous source, and it depicts Nero making obscene gestures and straddling an individual that Deadspin had identified as a 2017 graduate of GW. You know, in this video, Nero is sitting on this person's lap and he is making a v-shape with his middle and pointer finger and placing them up to his mouth while sticking his tongue out and there were also screenshots published along with this article that shows nero drinking with this same group of people when nero resigned in 2017 what did university officials tell us nero's resignation was very sudden it happened in the middle of a sports season which is also unusual When Nero stepped down from his role, the university and the athletic department didn't really offer a clear reason why he was leaving. Nero said he was moving on to the next phase of his career. The athletic department thanked him for his work there, praised his legacy, and then pretty much kept quiet about everything else. So there was not really a reason given to us as to why he had left. Walk me through the allegations made against Nero. So these allegations range anywhere from Nero being excessively drunk to giving preferential treatment to student athletes. I spoke to experts about these allegations and kind of had them help me sort them into different buckets um, in terms of whether they're misconduct violations, NCAA compliance violations, or Title IX violations. And just in terms of, you know, the allegations of excessive drinking, in the case of this video, it appears the other people in the video are very recently graduated students, so they're alumni. In those instances, those would fall under misconduct violations. Uh, Every university has codes of conduct and professional standards and things like that. In terms of the strange social relationships that Nero was supposedly having with these student athletes, NCAA rules do not prevent athletic directors from interacting with student athletes, from inviting them out to dinner to their homes and anything like that. But where the line gets fuzzy is the level of interaction during those gatherings as well as whether or not these student-athletes received benefits from these gatherings. And by that, for an example, would be there was another allegation in there in which Nero was offering to let students use his home, and that can be construed as a benefit, which is not allowed under NCAA compliance issues. And then just in terms of Title IX violations, 
um, anytime there is any sort of allegations of sexual misconduct or discrimination based off of gender, those types of violations will fall under Title IX. In the instance with Nero, there were sources coming forward saying that Nero acted with sexually aggressive behavior in front of staff, as well as making inappropriate comments to recruits or making recruits, quote, feel creepy, unquote. Um, and in those instances, those could those would fall into more of the Title IX violation bucket because of the sexual nature of these allegations. What did the university say following the release of the Deadspin story? The university declined to comment about this Deadspin story. The athletic department sent us a statement initially, but then declined to answer all of the questions that we sent them about these allegations and about the athletic department's role with these allegations. I spoke to experts in sports conflict, Title IX litigation, and NCAA compliance, and they said the university and the athletic department need to be more transparent about what happened in the past as well as what they're doing to move forward and and to make positive change within this athletic department. One of the suggestions that I heard numerous times from these experts was the athletic department should bring in outside counsel and outside investigators to come into the department and look at what happened in the past, figure out what went wrong, and then address those issues so that going forward there's real change made. Another positive change that experts said the university has already taken was putting somebody like Tanya Vogel in the athletic director position. Previously, Tanya Vogel was the deputy Title IX coordinator within the athletic department, and so putting someone like her in that position, given her knowledge of Title IX, given her expertise in education and programming within Title IX, experts said that's a good step in the right direction because it seems like the university is making a conscientious change to put somebody who is well-versed in Title IX in this position to prevent any sorts of violations like this happening again, especially in that administrative role. It'll be interesting to see the next steps that the athletic department and the university take after these allegations have come to light. Definitely. Thanks for coming on, Barbara. Thanks for having me. I'm here with our student life editor, Sarah Roach, who had a story this week about GW having the most diverse student body ever. And this comes as recent enrollment data was released just the other week. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Leah. Give us a quick breakdown of the numbers here. On the undergraduate level, the percentage of white students um, saw the biggest fall. It had been moving between 50 and 60 percent over the past nine or so years. This year um, is just more than 50 percent. It's 50.7 percent, and that is down from 52.5 percent the previous year, and the lowest number in at least that nine-year time span. And the significance of that is that it's never dropped to just above 50 percent. So um, it'll be interesting to see if this goes below 50 percent in the next year or so. In other minority groups, um, black students, Hispanic students, Asian and international students, the percentage um, has always moved between 10, 7%, 8% in this year. The percentage of students in each moved up by just less than less than one percent in each demographic, um, but it did move up in, in across the board. Well, that percentage of white students moved down. 
Did experts say that this shift could be in part because of changes for admission practices? Yeah, um, experts in higher education and in diversity said that officials could be abandoning um, some old admissions practices. Well, they they are a bit abandoning abandoning old admissions practices like waiving the SAT and ACT score requirement. And experts said that this could be um, those practices paying off and resulting in more students from underrepresented communities. And what about different academic programs here at GW. How can officials tailor those programs to be more inclusive of different student groups? One expert I spoke with said, you know, GW can tout its like diverse student body and, and make sure that it's um, recruiting students from all different backgrounds, but it's what officials do once they step on campus that matters a little bit more than the students that they recruit. So one expert said that with a, a more diverse student body or, or an increasingly diverse student body, if it's, if it's getting more diverse every single year, then GW needs to start tailoring some of its programs, whether it be a its career service programs and making sure that international students have individualized support um, to know like what careers they have um, in the United States or elsewhere um, after they graduate, or making sure that officials are providing first-year generation students with um, with mentors that they can um, be surrounded with um, once they're on campus. It's more so those programs that matter, um, and making sure that you're keeping up with with the students who you're who you're recruiting, and you're making sure that they all have the programs they need to succeed. Thanks for coming on, Sarah, and giving us an update about GW's student body. Yeah, thanks for having me, Leah. I'm here with two reporters, Zach Schoenvelt and Lizzie Mintz. And this week, you both have a story about security in residence halls at GW. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks so much for having us. So over the past 30 days, 36 members of the GW Hatchet staff have been going around campus and checking different security monitors and stations and residence halls. So over the past 30 days, members have, of staff have gone to District House, uh, South Hall, Amsterdam Hall, and Shankman Hall at 10 a.m., 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. every day for 30 days. And what staff have been doing is seeing whether the student access monitors who are students who sit in front of residence halls and check students in as they tap in with their G World into their residence halls or sign in guests, they've been checking to see whether those student access monitors have been present throughout the day over the 30 day period. And what we found is a significant amount of the time throughout the day over the past 30 days, SAMs have not been present at those stations when they were supposed to be. Yeah, and so it really depended on which residence hall uh, we were checking. While uh, Amsterdam and South Hall, there was only a monitor present less than 5% of the time. Uh, And some of the other halls we checked, uh, Shankman and District House, the uh, presence of of SAMs was a lot higher with 73% uh, in Shankman Hall, as well as 94% at the I Street entrance of District House. It also depended on what time of day we were going. Uh, so, for example, in District House at the H Street entrance, uh, we did, when we did checks at 10 a.m., uh, monitors were only present there 6% of the time. But when we checked later in the day at 4 p.m. and 10 p.m., uh, that number went way up to 65% of the time. Uh, so. There, it really depended on what time of day, and so earlier in the morning, typically, uh, there would be a less presence of the monitors, but as you went later, especially into the afternoon and, and the night hours, uh, SAMs were there more times. What did experts have to say about the inconsistencies in security in residence halls? 
So an expert I talked to said that um, factors like residence hall population and geography of where the dorms are located on campus should be taken into consideration by officials when determining what kind of safety measures a university maintains. Peter D. Dominica, a lieutenant at Boston University's police department, uh, declined to comment on GW's actual security policies because he's not familiar with the geography and crime rates of the area surrounding the university, but he did say that when officials make decisions on where to staff monitors, they have to take into consideration what resources they have um, and sort of delegate where they're going to station security presence based on a large population of students and how many student access monitors and other uh, security presence they have at hand to monitor these halls. And what did the university have to say about security? So Daryl Darnell, the Senior Associate Vice President for Safety and Security here at GW, uh, said some residence halls like Thurston have a 100% ID check uh, 24-7, but residence halls with more public access, like District House, for example, require a double tap system where residents tap into the public lobby first and then the residents-only section of the hall. He also said that uh, some dorms like South and Amsterdam did not have SAMs at the, be- uh, at the beginning of the semester as often uh, because other residence halls have historically experienced higher crime rates. He said that the university analyzes a variety of factors, including crime trends, to determine security staffing and where and when to place SAMs in residence halls. But he declined to say it- the specifics of those shifts or what residence halls and the schedules of SAMs for security reasons. And you also spoke with resident hall association leadership too. I did. So S.J. Matthews, the president of the residence hall association said, while RHA has not recently worked with GWPD or the student access monitors, she plans to reach out to GWPD, the Division of Operations and the Center for Student Engagement next semester to discuss how RHA can work with officials to make campus as safe as possible. She said that safety presence um, and security for students is important because it, she said it's been a little disconcerting lately with all of the alerts that students have been getting. Um, I think it's just nerve wracking, especially if you're a first year student, when you get these text alerts saying something happened in a Marvin bathroom or there was a gunman outside, like things like that. So she said when she's spoken with students, they have been concerned about their own public safety um, and students often come home at what she said is weird hours uh, throughout the night and early morning. And she said that it's important to have these SAMs because it's good to know that you're not afraid to go home at night and that you know someone is there if anything happens. Thanks for coming on, guys, and giving us an overlook of the security presence in residence halls. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olf Studio. Special thanks to Barbara Alberts, Lizzie Mintz, Sarah Roach, and Zach Schoenfeld for joining us. See you after Thanksgiving break.